It's great to be here. If you were able to join us for the conference yesterday, it was a great uh, weekend, and hopefully maybe some of you, I know, because I was there, I saw you there, uh, were able to join us for Sunday school as well, so it was a really good time. I appreciate you all having me here uh, this weekend and also uh, to bring God's word to you. If this is the first time you've ever seen me, perhaps because you just came in this service, uh, I am not Brandon Barrett, just in case you're wondering. Just want to clear that up. Uh, But um, we're going to look at Romans 12 uh, this morning, and um, I'll say just a few words first, just by way of introduction uh, to what I've been doing lately. Uh, some of you may know I've, uh, I was involved with Reformed University Fellowship at VCU from 2003 to 2009. The summer of 2009, I transitioned from RUF to uh, being the director of the Richmond Center for Christian Study, which is a relatively new nonprofit uh, whose uh, mission is to bring uh, further gospel transformation to the greater Richmond area by fostering uh, serious consideration and discussion of a biblical worldview and how that worldview bears on all areas of life and culture. And we do that by bringing in speakers, offering courses, providing internships for uh, students, uh, especially at the University of Richmond, and uh, eventually having a resource center next to the University of Richmond for you, our students, and the greater Richmond community as as a whole. I think you're a little bit outside that circle, but of course you're welcome to come anyway, and I'm happy to be here, so that's fine, no no problem. Um, If you are interested in helping to make that a possibility, that resource center financially, feel free to come and talk with me because we do need additional funding before we can pull that off and all the little pieces come together. I think you know kind of how that works, so... But uh, the Richmond Studies Center is, is really a both-and in a whole bunch of different kinds of ways. I think that's just kind of life in a lot of ways. But here's an example. When you think study center, you think thinking, helping people to think God's thoughts after him. And, and that's true, and that's valuable. Because after all, Jesus said the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's not to be undervalued. But it's not just that. It's also helping people put those thoughts into action in their lives. And that's really the nature of the gospel. That's the nature of the God we serve. Now, uh, I know this church pretty well, and I know that you've probably got a lot of good teaching from the book of Romans, for example, which we're going to look at this morning. But Learning without transformation is pointless, and that's kind of the point of our text this morning. The question is, how are you putting the book of Romans in particular into practice in your life today? You know, Romans is uh, known as probably the most uh, rich theological book in the whole Bible, but what are you doing with it? What are you doing with it? That's what Paul drives us to consider in our text this morning. So before we read certain portions of chapter 12, I just want to recap for you everything that's come uh, up to this point, Romans 1 through 11. First, actually what I want to do is I want to take a step back and look at the whole book. 
The whole book of Romans really boils down to one thing, the righteousness of God. That's what Romans is all about. In fact, Paul basically says so in his thesis statement, in his theme verse, Romans 1.17, where he says, In the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. That's it. It's about the righteousness of God. And we see that fleshed out in different sections of the book. It's chopped up into different major sections. Chapters 1 through 3 deals with our desperate need for God's righteousness because we don't have it in and of ourselves. It's what we call the fall of man. Uh, Paul says in Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. It's pretty bleak. Unless we think that the problem with the, the brokenness of this world is out there somewhere, maybe with the Democratic Party, or maybe with that group of, over there, or whatever. Paul says this in Romans 2, 1. He's talking to the church. He says, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. And then he really brings it home in Romans 3 when he says that every single one of us in this room, in his original audience, every single one of us by nature is under sin and awaiting divine judgment. That's the reality that every single one of us has been born in. And it really highlights our need for God's righteousness. And then in chapters 3 through 5, Paul talks about God's own provision of righteousness, what we call justification, how he has provided what we desperately needed and could never provide for ourselves. Paul says in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God accomplished what we could never accomplish for ourselves but it's our deepest need. And then back in uh, chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the apostle said it was all about. It was all about being reconciled to God. You're by nature an enemy of God. If that's the case, what, what in this green earth is more important than you being reconciled to your maker? That's what the gospel is all about. And then... In chapters 6 through 8, Paul talks about the power of God's righteousness, what we call sanctification. Not only does God declare us righteous in Christ, he actually makes us righteous. Paul says in Romans 7.15 something that you might consider a little depressing. This is what he says, 7.15. He's, he's talking about himself. He says, I don't understand what I, what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. That's just depressing, isn't it? You identify with that? <coughs> it's just kind of the nature of the Christian life, right? But I think more fundamentally, it's really not depressing. It's really encouraging. Because Paul is giving us a picture of what it means for God to build his own righteousness in Paul's life. God has awakened Paul 
to spiritual warfare. And that's an encouraging thing because if you're a Christian, you're involved in that annoying spiritual warfare, that struggle. But you used to be dead. You didn't have to worry about that warfare because you were dead. But now God has made you alive in order to engage that spiritual warfare. That's a wonderful thing. And Paul says in Romans 8, 11, that through that spiritual warfare, we grow over time. God builds in us more and more his own righteousness. Paul says in 8, 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. In other words, if you're a Christian, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. you know, Paul, is, he's talking about sanctification there. He's talking about God building his righteousness in you. God is going to do this. And then uh, chapters 9 through 11 is where Paul talks about the certainty of God's righteousness. Uh, we might call it assurance. And this was especially important for Paul's original audience because at this point, if you're part of Paul's original audience, you're kind of jiving with him up to a point because you're thinking, well, this is great. I know we're in a broken world. I know I'm a broken person. I know I have no righteousness in and of myself. It's wonderful that through Christ, God declares me righteous and that he actually makes me more and more righteous. That's great. What could be better than that? I've got a problem, though. The problem is, I don't really see that God was faithful to his people in the Old Testament. After all, they rejected their own Messiah. So God turned away from them and went to the Gentiles. And if God wasn't faithful to his people in the Old Testament, why on earth should I believe that he's going to be faithful to me now? That was a big question. For Paul's original audience, so big, Paul devotes three chapters to it, chapters 9 through 11, to talk about the certainty of God's righteousness. And he addresses it in a number of different ways. I'll just give you one example. In chapter 11, verse 1, Paul pointedly asked the question, I asked then, did God reject his people in Old Testament times? His answer is, by no means. I am an Israelite myself a descendant of Abraham. Paul appeals to him, himself, an ethnic Jew, and of course many other ethnic Jews, who did embrace the Jewish Messiah. There was a remnant that was saved. And in fact, that's the way God has always done it. We read in Isaiah about it is the remnant who will be saved. That's the way it's always been. God has always been faithful to his people, and God will continue to be faithful to his people now. So he really lays out the case for the certainty of God's righteousness. So that's the theology of Romans, packed into chapters 1 through 11. Our desperate need for God's righteousness that we just simply don't have in, our, in and of ourselves. But then God declares us righteous even though we're not. Isn't that interesting? That what, what justification means is God is declaring something to be true that isn't true. He's declaring you to be righteous even though you're just plain not. So I always find that really interesting. But then God actually makes us more and more righteous to match the declaration. And God shows us that he will be willing, he will be faithful in granting us his righteousness. 
That's the theology of Romans. That's the gospel. That's the wonder of God crashing into this world to reconcile us to himself. But so what? Who cares? Why does it matter? What good does it do to know this gospel if we don't put it into practice in our lives? And it's that question that leads Paul to write chapters 12 through 16. That's the application of God's righteousness. And this is what our text urges us to consider this morning. So let's read. We're going to read Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, and then jump down to verse 9 through 21. Hear God's word. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as, bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And then down in verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above, your, above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with, with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your gospel. And we thank you for the spirit of your son living in our hearts that molds our minds more in line with that gospel and molds our hearts and our lives more in line with the practice of that gospel. And we pray that you would accomplish that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's, it's interesting, isn't it, that in the book of Romans, chapters 1 through 11, that's the majority of Romans, it's a long stretch, you don't see a lick of application, not a bit. Not until you get to chapter 12. And then the book just erupts in a litany of application. And it's key to realize that there is a vital connection between what Paul says we are to believe, that's Romans 1 through 11, and what Paul says we're to do, that's chapters 12 through 16. There's that vital connection. 
Now, many people think that theology, Romans 1 through 11, is merely academic and certainly irrelevant to what really matters in the real world. It's common perception. The thought is what we really need to worry about is the practical. That's where the rubber meets the road. The hungry, those in need. We need to reach out and help. That's, that's what deserves our attention. But Paul makes the point right off the bat that you just simply cannot know where you are going in your practice without good theology. In fact, theology drives your ethics. There's no way around it. That's always the case. Whatever, whatever your practice is, whatever you're doing in life, it has a root in some sort of theology. There's always gas fueling the car. And that's why Paul starts off this final major section of Romans with the word, therefore. Look at Romans 1. The first word is therefore. We're going to park on that word for a minute. It's a crucial word. Therefore implies that something that came before is being tied with something that comes ahead. Okay, so what is Paul tying together? Well, what had Paul just been doing in the verses prior to the word therefore? In the several verses prior to 12.1, Paul had been recapping all of the theology of Romans 1 through 11. And basically what he's saying is, therefore, because of Romans 1 through 11, I urge you to do something. And we see that connection again when Paul says, in view of God's mercy. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy. So he repeats the connection. When he says in view of God's mercy, he's talking about the mercy of Romans 1 through 11. And I find it interesting that Paul takes all this grand theology uh, in Romans 1 through 11 and he summarizes it with the single word mercy. That's it. So another way to recap the theology of Romans 1 through 11 is through that prism of mercy. You are more sinful than you dared believe. Jesus is more gracious than you dared hope. And the spirit who transforms you is more powerful than you dared imagine. The mercy of God, Romans 1 through 11. Your theology drives your ethics. That's why Paul says in verse 2, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Here's that connection again. Be transformed. Ethics, practice. What are you going to do? Uh, what's the root of that? By the transforming of your mind, theology, how you see God in the world. Now, two things to note here. Paul is not saying that the goal is mere growth in knowledge. The goal is total transformation. Although, after all, that is the command, right? Be transformed in your life, in your whole being. Be changed. Be transformed after the image of Christ. The second thing to note is that that total transformation comes through what? Growth and knowledge. It comes through the mind. The mind is the gatekeeper, so to speak. 
Be transformed by or through the renewing of your mind. And that renewing of the mind comes through things like plugging in with the church and encouraging friends that are going to be an instrument of growth in Christ for you. Reading the Bible and challenging uh, books, discussing uh, different aspects of who God is and what he's done in this world and what he's doing in your life with, with friends that you may grow in spiritual maturity. Those are just the instruments through which that happens. Well, then Paul says that this gospel is to be practiced not just through discussion and contemplation, although that's a big part of it, but in very concrete, physical kinds of ways. And this really tends to cut against the grain of how we tend to think about it in the church. But this is what Paul says in God's word. Paul says in verse 1 that because of Romans 1 through 11, I urge you, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. We think about offering God our heart, our soul, our spirit, those kinds of intangible things. But Paul says, offer, offer your fingers, offer your toes, offer your body as living sacrifices. It's interesting. Tim Keller says this, Paul is saying that God does not just want a purely inward and abstract worship, but a practical and total one. And this makes sense because our rebellion corporately against God was a very concrete physical rebellion, right? So it makes sense that our redemption and our practicing of the gospel must also be a very concrete and physical one as well. Our rebellion against God was a very concrete one. Paul says this in uh, Romans 3, 13 through 18, for example, when he says this. He refers to very specific physical parts of the body to represent the fall. Their throats are open graves. He's talking about fallen humanity. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Do you think about your feet as fallen? Do you think about your feet as sinful? Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Do you think of your eye as, as a physical organ in your body as in, in rebellion against God? That's the way Paul's talking about it. And God redeemed us, body and soul, right? Paul says exactly that in Romans 8, 11. Again, we referenced this before. And if the spirit of him who, is, who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Now, you might think, well, when he says the, the spirit will give life to your mortal bodies, what he's saying is one day we're going to die and then Jesus is going to come back and raise us from the dead. That's true. Paul teaches that. That's not what he's saying here. Okay, in the context here, what Paul is saying, what he's talking about is sanctification. God making you more and more righteous now in this life. And he describes that by saying that the Spirit is, is giving life, not just to your heart, your mind, all those kinds of things, but to, to your toes, to your ears, to your mortal bodies. 
So now we are to serve our God in the concreteness of real, tangible, physical life. Again, Paul says in Romans 6, 12 and 13, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. I think if we, if we really thought more along these lines, we would put the gospel into practice in, in greater, deeper ways. Do you think about how your fingers, your toes, your eyes, your ears, your tongue, etc., can be put to use as an instrument to serve God as a sacrifice to Him? Do you think along those lines? So, uh, John Stott says it this way, Then our feet will walk in His paths, our lips will speak the truth and spread the gospel, our tongues will bring healing, our hands will lift up those who have fallen, our arms will embrace the lonely and the unloved, our ears will listen to the cries of the distressed, and our eyes will look humbly and patiently towards God. And it's, it's interesting also what Paul says in verse 1. I know we're getting a lot of mileage out of verse 1, but that's okay. There's a lot there. We're not going to take that the, this long for each verse in Romans 12. Don't worry. <laughs> but he does say in verse 1 that this response that we're talking about is the only reasonable response. There isn't another one. Anything else would be purely unreasonable and actually irrational. We don't think along those lines, but Paul lays that out. This is what he says in, in verse 1. He, he says, Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. Okay, I'm using the NIV. Mine says, which is your spiritual worship. Now, in uh, the, the Greek in which Paul actually wrote, that, that word that the NIV translates spiritual, it, it more precisely means reasonable or rational. Okay, This response we're talking about is, this is your reasonable, your rational act of worship. There's not another rational option. Tim Keller says it this way, anything less than a total complete sacrifice of ourselves to God is completely irrational. If you give yourself partially or half-heartedly, you're simply not thinking. You are not looking at what Jesus did. That's what Tim Keller says about that. One pastor says it more offensively. This means that to fail to give yourself in complete and total obedience to God is not merely an offense to the moral sense. That's how we tend to think about it. But it is a crucifixion of the intelligence. It is as stupid as it is wicked. Think. How can you come to grips with someone who has given himself utterly to you without giving yourself utterly to him? It's just not a rational option. So it's amazing how Paul really presses that point. We tend not to think about it in those terms. But then starting in verse 9, 
This is where we're going to kind of run through here, make one kind of overarching point. Paul just gives a litany of examples of what it means for us to put this gospel into practice in very real and concrete ways. And as we go through this, I want us to think about the therefore in verse 1. Remember, we're not, you know, uh, ethics is not in a vacuum. It, it has its roots in theology, and Paul certainly is laying that out. So let's look for it. Verse 9, love must be sincere. Why? Just because it seems like a good idea. What's, what's the theological root that really makes that valid? Why must love be sincere? Well, because God's love for us in Christ is sincere. And God loves for us to copy him. Hate what is evil. Why? Because God is holy and thus hates evil. And he calls you to follow him and copy him. Verse 10, be devoted to one another. Why? Because Jesus is devoted to you. And this is similar to what Paul says in Philippians 2 when Paul tells us, honor one another above yourselves. I don't know about you, but that gives me pause. Because it's, it's, it's hard enough to love and honor somebody else as much as I do myself. But you're telling me to honor one another above myself? That's just pretty radical. Isn't that going a little bit too far? What, what would be the theological root to warrant that kind of ethic? Well, the theological root is that's how Jesus devoted himself to you. Um, Jesus himself had this same kind of attitude towards us. This is what Philippians 2 is, is all about, where Paul says, honor one another above yourselves, have the same attitude in yourselves that Christ Jesus had. This is fascinating because who is Jesus? Jesus is God become man. And yeah, he lowered himself by becoming a man, dying the death on the cross. But through that all, he's still fully God. And the problem I have with that is, wait a minute. Jesus is more important than me because he's God and I'm not. So how in the world could Jesus take on the attitude that he sees me as more important than himself? That's contrary to fact. But the Bible says that was his attitude anyway. That tells you something about the character of our God. It's amazing. And this God calls us to follow him and copy him by having that same kind of attitude towards each other so that when you're talking to each other, relating to each other, you're actually thinking to yourself, this person is more important than I am. It's pretty radical. In verse 12, be joyful in hope. Why? Is this just something like the self-esteem movement where, well, we all know we want to feel good about ourselves, so let's just do it in a vacuum. No, it's not that at all. Be joyful in hope. Why? Because Paul says in Romans 8.23, we have been given the hope of the resurrection. And that conquers everything. We have a root, a reason for our hope, our joy. And also in verse 12, he says, be patient in affliction. I don't know about you, but that strikes me as extremely un-American. Be patient, <laughs> excuse me, be patient in affliction. I thought what it meant to be American was Burger King theology. Have it your way right away, right? That kind of clashes with this. Be patient in affliction. 
Well, why? I kind of like the other one better. Why should I adopt this? What's the, what's the theology that drives that ethic? Well, Paul says in Romans 8.18 that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Different people in this congregation are suffering in different ways to different extents. You don't ever want to minimize that. But if Romans 8.18 is really true, then I can afford to be patient in affliction. Verse 13, Paul says, share with God's people in need. Why? Because God shared his son with you. God is a sharing God. Practice hospitality. Why? Because God is a God of hospitality. The Bible says that God is preparing a banquet for his people. So God calls us to prepare a banquet for each other. Share with God's people in need. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Why? Because God blessed us in Christ when we persecuted him, when we were in rebellion against him. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. Why? Because the angels rejoice when one sinner is set free from his sin. God is a God who rejoices with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Why? Because according to Romans 8.26, the Spirit of Christ groans or mourns within us until our redemption is complete when Christ returns again. Verse 16, be willing to associate with people of low position. Why? Because Jesus was willing to associate with you. Somebody who, God of the flesh, we're relatively in much lower position. Of course, that's me as well. So we're called to copy him in that way. Verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Why? Because Jesus did not return evil for evil when it came to our sin, what did he do? He took our sin and gave us his righteousness. That's the very opposite of returning evil for evil. So what business do the people of that kind of God have returning evil for evil? And then in verse 17 it says, Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. This, this just strikes me as a totally counterintuitive statement. Even when I think about you know, thinking Christianly. It's still counterintuitive because doesn't what it means to think Christianly, doesn't that mean that we're supposed to care about what God thinks and not about what man thinks? Sounds spiritual. That's what I always thought. But Paul says, no, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. Whoa, Paul, how how can you help me understand how that squares with what I thought it meant to think Christianly? Well, Luke 2, 52, look at, uh, look at Jesus. Look at the life of Christ himself. Luke 2, 52 says that Jesus himself grew not only in favor with God, but with men. So, now, of course, if God and man clash, God wins. But, otherwise, we need to be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. We tend to not realize that sometimes. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Why? Because God overcame evil in this world. God overcame evil in your life 
through the cross of Christ. So he calls you to do the same. Do not be overcome by evil, but you go out there in your lives in the world and you overcome evil with good. In Romans 12, Paul is calling us to believe the gospel, but not only believe it, but show true biblical belief, which includes putting it into practice in these specific ways in your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for, we just give you praise for being a God of truth, a God of mercy. And we thank you for how you have crashed into this world that you've made to reconcile all things to yourself through uh, the cross and resurrection of Christ. We pray, Father, that you would continue to grow in us belief in your gospel and uh, putting your gospel more and more into practice in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.